Welcome to Rocking Our Prize. Today I want to learn about industrial policy in a big way. So I have not one, but two podcasts. First, we're going to review the literature, asking how we can assess the effectiveness of industrial policy, looking at new econometric methods, natural experiments, and the latest empirical advances. Then, in the second podcast, we'll discuss one study in depth. And I'll be chatting with Dr. Nathan Lane, Assistant Professor at Monash University. Nathan, welcome. Wow, this is, this is fantastic. I look forward to this big time. It's nice. It's nice to do this in person. Sure. Sure. We'll see. Right. <laughs> so, start us off. What is industrial policy? So there's a lot of definitions of industrial policy. So people kind of split hairs over specific definitions. I think of it as intentional state action that's meant to kind of change the structure of production within an economy. And that's like people using policy levers different from macroeconomic policy per se. It's things that are different than interest rates and normal fiscal policies. Things that are more direct and targeted to changing the nature of production within an economy. Can you give me a couple of examples? Like using like, classic examples might be um, you know, an economy wants to move into manufacturing so they use tariffs and protective measures to kind sure. of insulate or incubate new industry in, in manufacturing. Awesome. Yeah, classic um, example. And what's the theory behind so there's a number of competing theories of industrial policy. There's many different theories of industrial policy. Basically, all of which kind of speak to this idea that there's this new equilibria that an economy sh should be or can be functioning in. And that the current static state of the economy is one that's kind of suboptimal in some mm -hmm, way. Mm -hmm. you know, that we can guide resources to one sector and realize mm -hmm. different types, more productive or mm -hmm. growth-enhancing types of economic production. And maybe there's some ways that this can occur. Um, usually the culprits for why we're not functioning or why economies aren't functioning in these kind of higher growth sectors mm -hmm. or higher growth economic activity is that, oh, maybe there's some kind of market failures that, that stop economic activity uh, from flowing into these sectors and these types of production. Yeah. Okay, but now you, start, you sort of hint at market failures and state intervention. Playing devil's advocate, many people worry that industrial policy just induces rent-seeking, corruption, patronage, and weak states just simply can't discipline markets or know what to invest in. They don't know how, how to pick the winners. And maybe mm -hmm. it's better to let the market reward and incentivize a sensible investment. So given, given the, the debates on each side, the theory for it uh, and the skepticism against it, how have economists tried to resolve these debates and evaluate its effectiveness. I mean, how the hell does one identify a causal relationship between a big package of industrial policies and various outcomes, you know, building infant industries, accelerating technological change, and generating agglomeration? Can I do a regression? No, you can't do a regression. <laughs> well, why not? Well, there's a, well, well, let's back up. There's a, first a couple things here. There's a couple things going on here. So, um, one, economists do tend to be skeptical of industrial policy for many reasons. Many of which are, are probably good reasons, you know, since this is a kind of, uh, the classic theories of rent seeking actually stem from uh, people's concerns of industrial policy. Uh, is it Anne Kruger's classic study on, on rent seeking? You know, if it, what she has in mind in her canonical examples is kind of industrial policy gone wrong, right? And so I think those are real, those are real concerns. Those are real concerns. But I think those are different concerns from the idea of whether industrial policy works per se. You know, 
I think these are absolute realistic concerns and things that people have to contend with with the implementation of industrial policy. But I don't know if those things are unique to industrial policy even. You know, as, industri as uh, development scholars, we think of all types of policies and we're interested in evaluating the efficacy of all mm -hmm. types of interventions. And it's not clear to me whether those are more or less also prone to rent-seeking as industrial sure. policy is as well. Um, but I think the fact that industrial policy was early on associated with these kind of, um, uh, kind of canonical rent-seeking uh, issues has kind of plagued it with this, this, uh, this, this kind of um, scarlet letter of sorts. Sure. Or, yeah, yeah. And so, how okay, do so, we, yes. So getting to, like, so your question about mm, the causality of industrial yeah. policy, that's another, so that's another, that's another question, or that's another issue that's really, really hard to simply run a naive regression on an outcome uh, with industrial policy on the right-hand side. Why? Why? Well, because industrial policy, let's think, let's take rent-seeking. Mm -hmm. Let's take rent-seeking. Let's say governments are kind of administering or divvying out what we think of in, as industrial policy mm -hmm. um, according to rent-seeking motives or political motives. They're allocating industrial policy according to, um, uh, say, Suharto allocates industrial policy, uh, throws a bunch of resources into the luxury automobile sector because his child, Tommy Suharto, like, has a fondness for luxury automobiles. Of course, the relationship between a rent-seeking induced industrial policy or things that look like industrial policy, and an outcome will be negative mechanically. Sure. You know, that's a classic, you know, mm. kind of negative correlation between... Uh, so intentions matter, right? Intentions absolutely matter. And often in kind of, often in environments with weak states or states that are kind of rife with corruption where industrial policy is being steered by rent-seeking motives, um, of course, industrial policy gets allocated to kind of poor projects. Sure. Yeah. So, so that's just one of the many examples why you might get kind of a negative relationship between industrial policy and an outcome where after growth or productivity or exports. So that raises a, a problem if you wanted to do cross-country studies because you would bring in all these sorts of different things. Exactly, on. exactly, exactly. You know, say you run a regression. So say you take that example and extrapolate it out. You think of um, measuring, say you have a measure of industrial policy, which... I should say is, is really, we don't have great cross-country measures of industrial policy. Because but they might look different in different places. Right? Absolutely, absolutely. And they're harder to measure in places as well, in some places as well. There's often intentions to obfuscate industrial policy, especially under our current kind of multilateral... Um, right, yeah, if the WTO doesn't permit it, exactly. you, know, you might sneak it in, in exactly. by the back door sort of thing. Exactly. So um, that's another issue. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Uh, there, there's a fundamental measurement issue, I think, mm, that, that, sure. that underlies issues mm, of mm. industrial policy. But say we can measure it. Mm. So say we measure industrial policy cross-country, and you regress, um, say, uh, country-level industrial outcomes, share of economic activity and manufacturing on um, the extent to which industrial policy is practiced in a country. Some measure of it. You know, often you cannot differentiate the intention of industrial policy. Industrial policy in many settings might be being implemented according to these rent-seeking motives. Or in industrial economies, we might often allocate industrial policy to industries that are on the decline. And those are perfectly rational reasons Sunset for Sunset industries, right? Sunset industries, right? Yeah, the UK right now, yeah, kind of uh, 
giving or at one time giving subsidies to iron and steel. Same with the U.S. Yeah, so like uh, sunset industries or lagging regions. Exactly, exactly. Say you want to, you want to, you don't want an industry to implode, so you mm. kind of, um, you give it a soft landing, and so you know. And th again, there's many, there's many reasons why one might allocate resources to an industry in decline. There might be perfectly, on the other hand, there might be very good reasons to allocate industrial mm. policy and industrial policy being practiced according to, um, uh, you're, you're allocating market policy according to market failures and trying to correct for them. And you're lumping all these things together when you take a cross-country regression. And you run a cross-country regression on some outcome at a country or industry level, and industrial policy on the other side of that equation. And you get this kind of really incoherent, often negative relationship because you have industrial policy being driven by, say, sunset industry motives or corruption motives, rent-seeking motives. And what that relation, what, what that estimate doesn't really tell you, it doesn't allow you to differentiate the intentionality of industrial policy. It doesn't, it's not really informative as to the effect of industrial policy per mm, se. But to play devil's advocate again, mm. you might say there's some advantage in knowing that on average, it might go badly because that might make you cautious about implementing it in some context. Absolutely. Like, so it doesn't, so suppose I'm, Yes. a very well-intentioned actor, then looking at the average effect is not useful. Mm -hmm. But it might, you know, raise... Yeah, so maybe in some contexts it might be useful to know that industrial policy on average might be tricky. Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. I think it is informative to know. Um... But no, I appreciate your point. So, and right, okay, so here's my next question. So what you're saying is that we should really focus on a single country? I think, I think, no, that's actually not it. Okay. I think, I think, um, I think... We should attack industrial policy using a number of different tools and mm -hmm. contexts mm -hmm. and sources of variation. Mm -hmm. To the last thing you mm -hmm. said, I actually think cross-country studies of industrial policy could have a lot of value added. Um, I think there's scope to actually do very in, well. in, in which context might it be useful to have a look at? Okay, so let's think about what you just said too, with like, well, maybe, maybe a policymaker might be interested in the average effect mm. or even the heterogeneity of industrial mm, policy mm, across mm. different contexts. Mm. There's a great paper a few years back in uh, Economic Journal mm. by uh, Bruce Bloningen. And he has this paper that studies, he, he does this great thing where he collects country by country, looking at one industry, looking at steel, he collects the different types of steel industrial policies being used across different countries for a period of time. And he looks at what's the effect across different contexts of steel industrial policy. What's the effects, what is it, what is the effect of these different steel industrial policies on um, both steel prices domestically in these economies and on the performance of downstream industries, industries that use a lot of steel in their production process. Specifically thinking about the export performance of downstream industries that use steel in their production process. And he finds a lot of heterogeneity, and he finds on average a negative effect. But he finds a very a lot of heterogeneity within that average negative effect. And it seems that in a lot of low like LDCs, we did see that industrial policy has a negative effect on many downstream um, steel exporters. But oddly enough, in the many other cases, in many countries where you see industrial policy might be implemented in coherent ways, I think he sees in many Scandinavian mm, countries mm, or in many East mm, Asian mm, countries, mm, mm. that there's actually a positive effect of industrial policy on downstream export performance um, 
in these contexts. Oh, I see what so you're saying. Is that, yeah, the cross-country studies are useful in helping us understand when industrial policy works and the circumstances in which Absolutely. it works. Absolutely, and he does it very carefully and very right. rigorously okay. and bringing and you know, does this very nice data collection. Because effort. he's not looking at average effects, he's looking at how the impact is mediated he's, by the circumstances. Yes, so he is looking at average effects, but he, I think I think the most interesting parts of the, the paper, mm. for me personally, mm. are the kind of this wild heterogeneity in the experience of industrial policy. And I think unpacking Hacking that and digging into that, especially in a cross-country setting, could be really has a lot of value. Added. I think it's wildly interesting, and there ought to be probably more studies like that. Yeah, yeah. So it's not to say that cross-country studies of industrial policy are not useful. They've just been done really poorly, and not kind of um, people haven't been too thoughtful in the specifications and research design and implementation of these things. But I think. Precisely for industrial policy, I think there's a lot of scope for kind of understanding industrial policy vis-a-vis cross-country regressions, actually. Or rather, cross-country, cross-industry regressions. So I can do a regression! Ha-ha! No, 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 no. That's not to say... You have okay, to think right. deeply. You have to right, think okay. deeply. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. i got to think deeply. All right, all right. Yes. Okay. Yes. So now I want to talk to you about... Suppose we're moving to doing a single country case study suppose i'm looking at how do you given that industrial policy is often a package a a range of Mm. things do you identify a singular or do you isolate a singular variable of interest how do you how do you work you know in south korea for example there are so many different things going on there's easy credit for favored industries tariffs as well as targets and penalties do economists assess them as a package yes so, yes, they do. And in some cases, they can be much more precise. Mm. So let's back up. In a lot of these cross-country studies, let's call them like the first kind of wave, or the first first cohort of industrial policy regression studies, people did not differentiate the policy regimes all that much. That is, they lumped together periods of liberalization, of industrial policy activity. How did they do that? I don't know. They really, they lump it all together and you see in these old studies that they're studying industrial policy just in a cross section or across different time periods where there are very, very different industrial policy regimes at work. And they use an outcome, an average outcome across all these different periods and I don't know what that tells us. So this is often very, people are often very sloppy with thinking about the precise policy that they're looking at. Yeah, and I think that's a problem. I think that gave us some kind of... um, some imprecise notions of how industrial policy worked on average is people were not very mindful of looking at and building a regression research design based on a particular policy, a particular intervention, or a particular lever. In general, people tended to just lump together different time periods and different policies all at once, and it gave us results that are really hard to interpret. Mm. And so That's to say, I think building a research design, building a careful research design, probably centered around one policy experience, one particular discrete intervention, is probably a lot more easy to interpret than lumping together willy-nilly a bunch of different industrial policies. And for that reason, one would need sound economic history knowledge of how the policies change and how Uh the implementation changes, right? Yes, so I think that's why people like myself and people like... um, Rika Juhas over at Columbia, or Walker Hanlon at NYU, and kind of another wave, there's this new wave of economic historians mm. who are revisiting industrial policy. 
I think economic history has lent itself to thinking about industrial policy because you really think about the historical context of mm. industrial policy, the institutions behind industrial mm. policy, and you can really kind of think clearly about the particular policy you're studying yes. and think about how to kind of structure research design yes. around evaluating that particular policy. I'm with you. Because as, in, as economic historians, we tend to take context very, very yeah, seriously. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, but here's a question. Suppose I understand my historical context. I understand the institutions. I've isolated the particular policy that I want to look at. How do I go about evaluating the outcome, like whether it works? Because what's my counterfactual, like compared to what? Yeah, yeah. So there's like a couple different things in that question. Um, but that, 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 and what you, what you just laid on is like, or what you just kind of, what you just touched on is like the kind of the question of industrial policy. Like when you think of a lot of past examples, or we think a lot of qualitative work or older even um, empirical work, a lot of people have this idea that, oh, um, it's hard to study industrial policy because, oh, we don't have the counterfactual. You, you hear that line repeated often, often, often. It's kind of a ubiquitous kind of claim um, behind studies of industrial policy. Do they say that more compared to other kind of policy evaluations, like education or health or whatever? No, no, no. Of course, but for some reason, people say, oh, um, industrial policy, with industrial policy, we don't have the counterfactual. We don't have the counterfactual. And... I can appreciate that critique. Um, in fact, I think that critique often comes with a lot of macroeconomic policy. Because like industrial policy, macroeconomic policy is often functioning at the national level, often mm. has national mm. level mm. macroeconomic objectives. So it's hard to think, okay, what would be the counterfactual world with this policy? Didn't right, so place? you don't have subnational variation. Exactly, exactly. But in industrial policy, we do have subnational variation. Or we might have um, industry by country variation, which is useful. So it's actually, I don't think, especially in a world where now we have kind of a clear understanding of empirical research design, natural experiments, and kind of causal inference, we do have kind of a large scope to think about counterfactuals in a clear, kind of disciplined way. So it's not too obvious to me that that's actually true, that we don't have a counterfactual to think about. Nathan. Can you give me an example of a study that develops a counterfactual and uses that to evaluate the effectiveness of industrial policy? I think a good example might be Rega Juhasz's paper on the Napoleonic blockade. Tell me more. Oh, yes, yes, right, yes, right, right, right. Paper, so, yes. So I think we can think of that. Uh, there's a number of other papers that do great jobs at thinking about, thinking clearly about a counterfactual kind of causal inference exercise using a natural experiment or mistakes or interesting aspects of the institutional variation of the policy. But I think this policy or her particular case study is really interesting and kind of clear and kind of pedagogical. Mm -hmm. that for some external reason, you have a Napoleonic blockade mm -hmm. that stops trade between England and the continent. And basically you have variation in different French regions that are exposed to this Napoleonic blockade, mm -hmm. effectively protected from and shielded from imports. They essentially face kind of import protection. And there is, so you have variation in the number of French regions that are exposed to import competition. And so you can compare different French regions vis-a-vis -vis this blockade that happen to be protected versus those that weren't protected. Ha! Right? Yeah. 
So you have you have some kind of interesting variation in your levels of exposure to this thing, this blockade nice. that looks like an industrial policy mm. exercise. This mm -hmm. thing that's effectively protecting different French regions from import competition effectively. So it's a thing that kind of mimics industrial policy and exposes different regions to what we, what we think of as a nat, uh, it's a natural experiment right? exactly yeah. exactly that's exactly what it is okay. perfect and so it's it's very nice and so there ergo you can compare the evolution of industry in different regions you can expo you can think about how um so you can you can compare regions that were more or less exposed to industrial policy and consider what would happen in the absence of industrial policy and estimate the effect of industrial policy okay. on industrial outcomes okay so I wanna... in her case technological adoption so you said I need to understand intentions, I need to understand economic history, the political context, and I need to think carefully about counterfactuals, which is entirely possible. My next question, Nathan, what outcome variables should I look for? Yeah, so we think about a number of different outcome variables. We're backing up. I think there isn't one kind of common... How do I say this? So that's actually a tricky question. It's actually a tricky question because there isn't one agreed upon criteria of what it means for industrial policy to work. There's often many different objectives that countries have insofar as how industrial policy, the aims of industrial policy, how they want it to function, how they want it to work. Sometimes they're strategic. Other times there is some welfare notion attached to um, improving the well-being of an economy on aggregate. Sometimes there's notions of uh, just merely spurring the growth of one sector or another. So there isn't really an agreed upon definition of what it means for industrial policy to quote unquote work. Um, and that often gets us into some tricky kind of um, uh, issues with impact evaluation. Oftentimes people think of, we usually tend to think that we hope that industrial policy ought to produce ought to increase productivity in the mm. sectors it targets. Mm. And that's one goal. Maybe with more place-based policy, such as in the case of uh, place-based policy throughout the EU and yes. the UK, we usually might want to increase the employment or increase wages, perhaps, certain income in these regions, without it negatively affecting the welfare or wages or employment in other regions. And so again, that's to say there's not one agreed upon notion of what it means for these um, policies to work. But we usually kind of have to be pragmatic in the way we evaluate them, using kind of a tapestry of, of different outcome variables that we're interested in. So back up a little, when we think of industrial policy working, um, let's say an industry level analysis of industrial policy working, we usually would turn to things like, again, productivity, total factor productivity. Do we see productivity increasing in these in these sectors or firms in the long run? Do we see growth increasing in these sectors or firms in the long run? Gross output, value added, things like that. Do we see exports increasing? That's often an objective. These are the things I would look at when I'm thinking of uh, when I'm thinking of evaluating the efficacy of industrial policy. Then even beyond that, you know, people might want the industrial policy to be subjected to some cost-benefit analysis mm, sure sure right and those often also get really hard yeah because it might not be clear how much this thing costs in in in, in the first place mm. and it might not be clear uh the benefits 
even if the benefit, especially if the benefits are external to that industrial policy, what the benefits were to, of this industrial policy. So this is all to say it's complicated, which is not quite a satisfactory answer for many people. I tend to think of, I tend to take a more pragmatic stance, which is a, let's bring together a lot of different outcomes that we think are relevant to that particular case. And let's think about its effect on these and amalgam of different outcomes. I think more often than not, evidence is mixed kind of by necessity. We often see some things working in some dimensions. We might see um, in the case of Korea, I see that um, wages don't increase all that much for certain regions during the kind of canonical Korean uh, industrial policies. But we see the output and productivity might increase. And I think that's to say, we often see industrial policy working in some domains along some outcomes, but not others. And well, what does that mean? Does that mean industrial policy is a success or a failure? Again, I think we have to think kind of pragmatically and almost perhaps even, not to sound corny, like philosophically about what does it mean for industrial policy to work? Yeah. Often too, I think we're often hamstrung by um, the, time, the scope of which we're doing an analysis. Often policymakers have a long, might have a long-term view or long-run view of the, the, um, the scope of their industrial policy. We, we want to eventually be, uh, we hope that this, this industry will eventually be a competitive industry in the long run or something like that. We hope that we'll have a national champion in the long run mm. over some long time horizon. Mm. But often we might evaluate industrial policy in very short-run terms. In static terms. Really? Do people do that? Yeah, in they do. static terms? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, even within, like, a, less than five years? Yeah, that, yeah, there are studies that do that. Yep. So, that is, like, often, the arguments for industrial policy are often dynamic. We often yeah, hope sure. there might be some emergent change, dynamic Surely change. Surely it takes time to build up an industry. It, like... ta it takes time. It takes time. Mm. And, of but, course, yep, yep, sorry. Can I ask a question, though? When... <sighs> Isn't there, even if you've got really great economic history knowledge, isn't there scope for omitted variable bias? Like, in two ways. One is not recognizing other possible causes. Oh, yeah. Two is not recognizing that IP might benefit complementary industries. And I'm curious, how do economists in this field go about understanding what might matter or what externalities could be interesting or important? Of the huge number of things to count and to test, how do they narrow it down? I mean, uh, yeah, to, yeah, how, yeah, how many yeah. of them use qualitative research to sort of work out, you know, we've spoken a bit about variables and you've highlighted yes. the range. How, how, suppose, suppose I'm a young PhD student starting out and I'm interested in industrial policy. Yes. How do you recommend to me practically that I go about thinking about what I should look for? I think qualitative literature and qualitative studies are, 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 are indispensable with thinking about the nitty gritty of how an industrial policy is being implemented and the factors behind it. And often as economists, we're not trained in the interpretation or the kind of like um, the research into qualitative, uh, qualitative work. Um, and so I think qualitative work and primary source work, even archival work is like extremely- Can you extremely... give me an example of how archival work can help you work out what to look for? Oh, for instance, you can see the kind of some, sometimes the criteria guiding industrial policy, the reasons why they were implementing uh, some okay, things okay. in their own words, in their own words. And I'm not just talking about, you know, in five-year plans, which can often mm. be quite misleading, mm. but you can often see, you know, maybe there are transcripts of meetings, such as in the case of Korea. Other times there's plan, actual planning documentation, not just the public five-year plans that tell you 
what was the criteria used to mm. choose industries? Mm. What were the policy levers being used? What were the reasons why they were choosing certain things? And therein might be, you know, some research design. Therein might be thresholds. We're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna target certain industries that you know we think might grow. Ex- uh, what's a good example? There might be some thresholds when you dig into these mm. these um, pl- like planning documents, mm-hmm. or there might be kind of um, uh, natural experiments that reveal themselves in these types of uh, uh, documentation. And I think you know if you if you dig deep into these things, you can often find some really neat stuff that informs the design of good uh, of good of good empirics. But um, but to your question, your original question was, what was it? You asked yes, me? suppose I'm a PhD student setting off to do, to study IP, and you're saying I, one, one, if I was an economic historian, IP to look at the archives and to look at transcripts. Yes, yes, and not just and not just economics. I think everyone should look at deeply think about the qualitative work behind um, the qualitative work with respect to industrial policy. There's so much qualitative work, and usually a lot of documentation revolving around industrial policy. Very yeah, yeah, yeah. That's helpful. Okay, next question. So we touched on this a minute ago. When you were saying that industrial development is dynamic, how long term do you think people should go? Like, yeah. for example, you know, fifty years. You know, that makes it tricky, right? Because then it's hard to know what what caused yeah, it. To trace yeah, the cause yeah. Of chain. I mean, what do you think is ideal? Again, I think it's going to be really context-specific. Mm-hmm. It's going to be really context-specific. and There isn't one kind of time span that matters. Um, I often think... I often think you should probably take... Mm, yeah, that's a good question. I don't think there is one ideal. Okay. I don't think there is one ideal. I think you should use available data probably that you mm, have. Yeah, sure. And think as complete as you can. Mm-hmm. But I think my point is more so that we often... There's often, we often evaluate policies using a notion of, hmm. But I think maybe you'll tell me if I'm butchering your sophisticated analysis, but no. you say that <laughs> the industrial policy, industrial policy, in industrialization is a, takes time usually. And for industrial policy in particular, as compared to other sectors, a longer term horizon might be beneficial in order to understand the longer term effects. Yes, yes. And often... We evaluate industrial policy. Like, say, like some of our trade tools are, are tools that examine um, the effects of policy in a static environment. That often precludes using a lot of the tools we have and the toolbox of tools we have for welfare analysis and trade, because these are often tools that are based upon looking at the static effects, the short-term effects, the partial equilibrium effects. Of industrial policy, whereas industrial policy are be usually being motivated by larger general equilibrium reasoning, usually larger kind of holistic, long-term reasoning. Um, yeah. Okay. So right. Yep. I'm the PhD student about to do interested in IP. I'm just going to summarize what I've learned so far from Nathan Lane. One. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Go. Go. <laughs> right. Let's go. So one is. Qualitative research, understand economic history, understand political context, understand interventions, then I can use a number of tools to uh, develop counterfactuals. I should look at a broad range of outcome variables in order to recognize it might have some positive effects or not. And also try to go as long term as I can because industrialization is a, often a slow, dynamic a slow moving, yes, a dynamic Okay, process. right. So that's the package to crudely summarize. Now I want to talk about some specific studies, some really cool studies. So yeah, we can think about Ernest Liu's study. Actually, 
in a sense, that's going to deviate a lot from what we've talked about. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, a lot of the point of the paper mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of walking through is, in my own work, is about thinking about how to apply and thinking through the kind of ins and outs of how we should think about applying contemporary econometric tools to analyzing the effect and efficacy of industrial policy. And I'm going to deviate from that in a big way by thinking about Ernest Liu's paper, mm-hmm. which is kind of, it's not like that. It's not, it's not kind of a classic empirical contemporary, um, you know, cause and effect type study of industrial policy, but it's thinking deeply about th- industrial policy theoretically. And so he thinks about industrial policy um, in a quantitative way, in a modeling sense as well. And he creates, he uses a very nice model of an economy, a general equilibrium economy, one that's endowed with many sectors producing things. But importantly, he thinks about a world that's a second best world, a world that's populated by a lot of distortions. And these distortions are usually the reasons why we think, or rather market imperfections. And these market imperfections are the reasons why we think industrial policy should work and ought to be practiced. And he thinks, he starts from this kind of Albert Hirschman type idea that we think linkages matter in the design of industrial policy. And we think that linkages matter and linkages probably interact in an environment and with this idea of market imperfections and market distortions. So his paper motivates this thing. It kind of is centered around this object or this entity, which he calls distortion centrality. Yes. Yeah. And this measure of distortion centrality, you know, using this framework, using this kind of theoretical machinery that he develops, which is nice. It's very deep theoretical machinery. Out comes this distortion centrality measure. And this distortion centrality measure is a rather, rather kind of simple thing, actually. It's a deep thing. It's a deep empirical or quantitative artifact. It's actually something that's rather intuitive, but it's kind of a representation of the, um, it's a representation of, it summarizes where, rather, distortion centrality measure ends up being this artifact that can guide and tell us where in an economy where there's a bunch of linkages or there's network effects and a bunch of distortions that percolate through um, um, the input-output economy, this distortion centrality measures tells a policymaker where should we practice industrial policy? How should we allocate industrial policy in such a second best world? So again, backing up a little. So don't ask why, ask how. Exactly. To quote our master. (laughs) Exactly. To quote Danny Roderick, like, how should we optimally perform industrial policy? Which gets to this idea that, like, okay, industrial policy is being performed in a lot of places, whether we like it or not. Mm. How should it be optimally practiced Mm. um, in an economy with Albert Hirschman style backward and forward linkages, in an economy where the distortions in an economy, the market imperfection of economy, percolate through these these uh, these linkages. And so so his measure actually captures the distortionality of an economy and ends up being, which he shows really nicely in a deep way, that this measure is a sufficient statistic for where we ought to target industrial policy. That if we're thinking about implementing industrial policy rationally and in a coherent way, in a technocratic way, where should we apply it to? And another implication of the paper in this measure is it also guides us into thinking, he also has this nice kind of empirical um, um, exercise or rather empirical technique that comes out of his analysis, which shows that 
you know, if we take this distortion centrality seriously, if we take his framework seriously, mm. it also allows us to think about the aggregate impacts of sectoral industrial policy. So in a lot of the methods I myself use and my peers use, and especially economic historians use, we're usually using, in, we're usually looking at within a country, usually within country variation, like in Reika Zhuhas's case, um, she was thinking about variation across this different districts. There were differentially exposed to industrial policy. In my own work, I look at different industries that are differentially exposed to industrial policy. So we're using within country variation to use causal methods, to apply causal estimates, to apply causal estimates, uh, to apply causal methods to estimate some causal effect, we hope, of industrial policy. Mm. But of course, what we can't get to using these methods, or what is often hard to get to, get at, is, well, what's the aggregate effect of industrial policy? Because we're using within country variations, it's hard to think, well, what is the effect on aggregate productivity or aggregate growth or mm. aggregate welfare? Yeah. And so, his framework actually proposes a way of thinking about, well, how did this, how does industrial policy at the sectoral level contribute to aggregate, um, aggregate development, growth in aggregate GDP? And so that's a nice implication of his paper as well. It gives us this kind of um, machinery for analyzing the aggregate effects of industrial policy. And so what he does is something really nice, and so it does something really nice, is he shows that um, he takes like, two canonical examples of industrial policy. Oh, one thing I should say, is that his distortion centrality measure is really nice because it's not just a theoretical artifact, it's an artifact that can actually be calculated from real-world data. And so if you actually take two canonical examples of industrial policy, industrial policy as it's practiced in China, industrial policy, he also he uses my data um, from South Korea, and, and looks at how industrial policy is applied sectorally in China and how it's applied sectorally in South Korea, and he looks, okay, if my measure of distortion centrality, which again is this measure that guides it, it ought to reflect rational industrial policy, how optimal industrial policy is performed. If this is indeed a measure of how industrial policy ought to be rationally performed and not allocated across in two different sectors, well, does what does it say about how industrial policy has been practiced in two kind of canonical cases of what we think of as technocratic industrial policy? And so he sees in contemporary China that indeed this distortion centrality measure really does capture where industrial policy is being allocated at a sectoral level in China. That often you know, they, they, are, they do seem to be allocating industrial policy, um, not incoherently, but to sectors that really have high, in his case, in his words, high distortion centrality. And if he takes the case I studied in South Korea, you think, well, did South Korea, did South Korea target sectors that were actually reasonable? And indeed, it tends to, it looks like this, the, the sectors that South Korea targeted do comport with this notion of distortion centrality, that industrial policy did flow to different sectors, sectors that had high distortion centrality. So it seems that this um, empirical measure, this quantitative measure that he's developed, actually has empirical bite. And what that also tells us is something interesting because there's a bunch of early generation regression studies that sought to kind of explore um, whether industrial policy was coherently applied or not. And they do that by looking at, um, they look at like Korea, they look at Japan, they look at, okay, did we think industrial policy um, was allocated technocratically to industries that had high returns to scale? high economies of scale or um, the large influential sectors in the input output network. And 
these regression exercises say, oh, it didn't, that actually wasn't the case. And so the, these, these studies have been very, have been used to criticize industrial policy by saying, hey, look, in, in, these, in these settings such as Japan and South Korea, industrial policy didn't seem to be allocated to sectors where we think industrial policy ought to work. That is large sectors, influential sectors, sectors with large growth potential or with large gro realized growth or to sectors that have high returns to scale. And what Ernest's measure tells us that, well, if you actually use just those limited criteria, those limited criteria actually don't tell us much about the coherence or sophistication of industrial policy. Those are just pieces of industrial policy. Those are just very, those are just pieces of the kind of a more um, substantial criteria that should be used to guide industrial policy. These are incomplete measures. So Ernest is pushing us to get a bigger picture analysis. A deeper kind of notion of industrial mm -hmm. policy. And he shows that if, let's say we use these, so we use merely size. Let's say we use merely influence. Yeah. Let's say we we allocate industrial policy using just these criteria that people use to study industrial mm -hmm. policy with, or rather use to critique the efficacy or technology technocratic nature of industrial policy in the past, say we actually use that criteria to allocate industrial policy. And with this framework, he shows that had we used that criteria alone, and not this rather sophisticated notion of, or criteria of industrial mm. policy, distortion centrality, mm. had we used these criterion for industrial policy to allocate it, it actually would have reduced aggregate growth. Yeah. So that is like, you know, all these papers that kind of really, these very, very influential papers that pass judgment on the efficacy or the technocratic nature of industrial policy by showing, aha, you know, these East Asian tiger economies didn't actually allocate industrial policy according to these like great mm. criteria. Well, that's not the complete story. They might've actually been acting very rationally. These notions or these criteria that they use are only part of the picture of how industrial policy ought to be allocated. In a sophisticated mm. way. Can you? Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. It yeah. does. I have another question though, Nathan. Can you explain <laughs> why research on industrial policy has always been concerned with input-output analysis? Why the two gone hand in hand? Yeah. So at the heyday of industrial policy analysis, let's go back to like Albert Hirschman, kind of great, great kind of the Hirsch, the Hirsch, the Hirsch. Like great structural kind of developmentalist, you know, yeah, yeah. you know post-war or pre-war in his case, uh, you know, structural economists. Um, you know, people t tended to think that you know this unbalanced growth hypothesis that maybe you can target certain sectors and realize aggregate growth by concentrating your your forces or concentrating um, resources in not just across every sector but in certain targeted sectors. Um, but of course, Albert Hirschman had this idea of linkages. He kind of famously motivated along contemporaneously with a bunch of other scholars, this idea of linkage economies mattering. That is, if you, if you, um, you know, a big argument for industrial policy is it ought to target, it, even if we target certain sectors, that there's beneficiaries of industrial policy beyond just the sectors in which we target. You know, there's forward-linked industries. Or let's say, actually, let's, let's just make a concrete example. You know, in the Albert Hirschman world, say we target steel. Mm. You know, Well, this might benefit steel. Okay, that's great. But it also has knock-on effects. It also has network effects through the input-output supply chain, through industries that use steel in their production process, forward-linked sectors like, like automobiles. And it ought to have backward linkage effects. Uh, 
on sectors that supply to steel. You know, industries like ore or kind of coke and, and these types of intermediate input suppliers to steel. So input-output economics was the study of these linkages in an economy. And it was actually much more than mm. that, but, but he took these input-output tables, these tables that kind of tell us the mm. intersectoral linkages mm. between sectors, how they're connected, you know, through forward and backward yeah. linkages. And he took it seriously. So let's think about industrial policy as it might generate large knock-on effects to downstream and upstream or forward-linked and, and, and uh, backward-linked industries. And so it became kind of like a critical ingredient to thinking about how to optimally allocate industrial policy in some way. It also also ties into kind of a larger um, literature on economic planning. Input output tables were kind of a critical yeah, ingredient. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> kind of a critical yeah. ingredient in this forgotten. But people people do input output planning still. But you know there is this uh, there is um, you know golden age of input output economies and these these tables these tools were also used. Um, uh, uh, quite intensely in economic and development planning back in the day. So industrial policy ergo became like very, very much uh, intertwined with input output. Uh, and do you think that's still the way to go? Do you think that's the most? I think it is the way to go. Mm. Um, of course, not in like this kind of like very, um, very kind of literal, you know, we're going to use input output planning. We're going to use input output matrices to actually do um hardcore national development planning. I don't think that's probably too useful. Um, but insofar as thinking about linkages and thinking about the linkage effects of industrial policy, I think that is really important. Let's back up a little. So going back to, to your question about like, wh why is there this intimate relationship between input-output economics, input-output tables, and industrial policy? So going back to Albert Hirschman and kind of classic thinkers of industrial policy and people who are thinking about, well, what are these linkage effects? How should we design industrial policy around linkage effects? My reading of that literature, and people might disagree, um, but especially if we think of Albert Hirschman's 1958 kind of famous piece, is that he thinks about backward linkages a lot. He thinks about, well, you know, what, we should think about industries and pushing industries that produce a lot of demand effects. That is, let's go back to our steel example. We ought to promote, if we promote an industry like steel, that has probably a lot of backward linkages. There's a lot of industries that supply to steel. So if steel grows, there's these backward linkage effects. There's these effects on the, all these upstream suppliers to steel, and that could in turn be, you know, positive demand shock to all these sectors, or positive demand shift to all these sectors downstream, right, or upstream. And so, and so, I tend to think that um, kind of classic developmentalist or classic industrial policy work really overemphasized the importance of backward linkages and the importance of developmental effects on upstream industries, upstream suppliers through these demand relationships. And you see that in a lot of kind of old, in my, when I read old kind of developmental literature, people are really stressing these demand effects. And I think it might have geared, it might have steered some policy towards um, overemphasizing moving towards industries that are very kind of um, rather downstream or sophisticated or consumer facing because they have a lot of, um, they, you know, there's a lot of backward linkages in these industries. You make automobiles. There's a lot of parts that go into automobiles. Mm. There's a lot of backward linkages there. 
Because that's really not what we see at the moment. For example, just drawing on my own research in Vietnam and Cambodia, you know, you might see a strong manufacturing garment industry, but that's all cut, make and trim. All the inputs are from China. Exactly, exactly. Oh, yeah. That, that, and when, when you think about um, the, these issues in an open economy, things are even more complex, mm. such as like in the context you just specified. And so people really overemphasize, I think, backward linkages. But if you think of Ernest's paper, Ernest's paper shows that industries that have high distortion centrality, again, these are industries, his measures is a sufficient statistic that you know, if, if industrial policy is done properly or optimally, you ought to target an implication of his measures. This measure is really correlated with very upstream industry, you know, industry that's relatively upstream, meaning that you should target these suppliers because there's a lot of forward linkage effects to the economy that are really important. Again, uh, Albert Hirschman kind of stressed backward linkages, but uh, Ernest's paper and, uh, and papers by um, Isabella Manalici, a job market candidate from Berkeley, my own work on Korea, it really showed that there's actually very important forward linkage effects, that forward linkages matter, that if you can really produce, if you can lower the price and push industries to have strong forward linkage effects, that can probably be developmentally Can I useful. suggest an example that you'll tell me is wrong because I'm not an expert on this? Oh, like, no, 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 no. But like railways in the British Industrial Revolution, like those had upstream effects that once you had the railways going, then that enabled a whole series of... Oh, no, 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 that's, that's a great, that's a great point. But there's huge spillovers from having, um, from having, uh, you know... Uh, Could you give me another example? But let's, let's say, let's say, yeah, let's say, um, example might be, let's go back to steel, you know, what I, what I see in South Korea... We can edit out my example if it wasn't a good one. No, it's not a bad one. Well, well I guess it's not industrial policy. I was just thinking of something that would well, yeah, have yeah. upstream so, so think of like... Yeah, yeah. I think So pushing an industry with... Um, like that lowers the transportation cost of a bunch of other people. Those mm. are strong. Those are strong spillovers. Mm, mm, those yeah. are strong spillovers that are really important. But I think you could think of pushing an industry like such as the heavy chemical industries or industries with strong... Um, with strong forward linkages that feed into and supply important industries, things like steel, certain crucial intermediate input industries. You could think of if lowering the price of these industries or fostering the growth of these industries could have potentially strong forward linkage effects through the economy. And I see that in, in, uh, in, South Korea. in the case of South Korea. Yeah, that, that there were industries that had, that used, that used the intermediate inputs that were pushed by the government tended to grow relatively more than other industries. Can I put you on the spot and we can yeah. edit this out if this doesn't work, but did you think of an upstream effect in like contemporary green industrial policy, like something that you might use industrial policy for that then could have a positive effect on other areas of the economy, like in contemporary USA or Europe? Yeah, yeah, no, if like say you wanted to foster the adoption of um, reducing the price of say, um, I think you could think about Again, I'm not going to speak to the, you know, the, the, the whether, whether these policies are social welfare enhancing or yada yada or pass a cost benefit test or anything like that. But let's say like, you know, you could think of um, an industry like the, the battery industry that many people are trying to, or many, many countries are trying to kind of promote. I think of promoting battery industries probably is batteries we think are kind of an input into many critical uh, green technologies or green manufacturing sectors. Um, you could think of promoting those as potentially having large downstream effects through other industries that use batteries in the production process. Okay, I'm yeah. with you. Now, okay, I've got another thought. The thing that's bugging me is, 
so much of this is mediated by politics and intentions, as you were saying earlier, you know, whether politicians actually want to generate growth or whether they're just using these policies to enrich themselves and their cronies. How have economists tried to get around that problem? Yeah. So I think often we've used, we've, I, I think, focusing on very clear research design in settings where we know that industrial policy was not um, allocated or implemented due to kind of cronyistic uh, machinations and things like that. That's one re that's one way we've we've kind of analyzed these policies. Another another reason why we use natural experiments, you know, such as, let's go back to Reka's paper. Mm. And the reason why that paper is so nice is that it uses something that looks like an industrial policy that isn't affected by or driven by the politics that usually underlie industrial policy. We could think of it had she studied the implementation of tariffs instead of some something that looked like trade costs being changed externally. Had she looked at protectionism, you might have had, well, protectionism being implemented and never being removed due to political issues. Yes. And so had we studied that, well, were we studying the effects of industrial policy per se, or are we studying it kind of confounded by the politics of industrial policy? And so we've usually gotten around it these days. In, in, for those of us trying to study the workings of industrial policy in general, or the efficacy of industrial policy in general, we've tended to look at things or tended to look at circumstances that kind of mimicked industrial policy vis-a-vis um, -vis natural experiments. Or in my case, I look at industrial policy that was removed by accident or by, by yes, external, external political forces. Was it? it? By death, wasn't it? Yes, by yeah, the assassination. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. I think your question is really good because, well, I mean, that's one way we get around the politics of industrial policy, but I think you, and you've hit on it a couple of times in that we think of industrial policy as being confounded by and really affected by political economy concerns. And I think, you know, of course, we've been kind of sidestepping the issue of political economy by implementing kind of nice research designs and, you know, by using contemporary causal tools to explore industrial policy. But I think we ought to... Um, take political science, political economy more seriously and thinking about the interaction of political economy with industrial policy. What and do you mean by that? So as I think, I think, you know, going back to your, kind of your question about, oh, are, are, should we do cross-country studies of industrial policy? I actually think we should. I actually think we should study more the patterns of industrial policy, the sectoral compositions of industrial policy, measure industrial policy more and seeing how those things are related to politics. Because we usually have an idea we usually have some idea that industrial policy is, is somehow affected by politics. It's somehow affected by democratic institutions. Mm -hmm. um, it's somehow affected by, of course, like you said, the, the weakness of states or the proclivities of uh, the kind of... Um, the kind of strength of corruption norms within a country and things mm. like that. But we... I, 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 and I've gotten in trouble for saying this, but I think, I think we ought to kind of study systematically how industrial policy or the efficacy of industrial policy varies by political institutions and political Don't politics. people already say that? Like people say, oh, fine, it works in East Asia, but it'll never work in Africa. Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. But I think, you know, all we have are these kind of very hand-wavy, very kind of incomplete, anecdotal kind of... Um, kind of like talking points that people bring up like that. And, and it's not clear to me that that's really the case. Okay, can you be more specific? Suppose... I'm Alice Evans, a keen economic PhD student, and I want to look at this. What would you suggest I do? Yeah, that's a good question. 
My first, my first answer is kind of a really depressing answer, which I don't know. Mm -hmm. But, but Helpful. thanks, Nathan. Yeah, I know. Yeah, much help that is. <laughs> but like, because I mean, I've been thinking about this hard. But, um, but I mean, going back, I think one thing to do is I think, and this is kind of a boring answer, but it's an answer that's kind of also echoed by trade literature as well, which is we don't know a lot about the patterns of industrial policy. We don't have systematic do data. So we don't have systematic data on industrial policy. I mean, we know tariffs, we have tariffs, but tariffs have been declining for decades. But non-tariff barriers are usually what, like, industrial policy is usually, you know, falls under what we think of as non-tariff barriers. Mm -hmm. And non-tariff barriers, things like subsidies, yeah. even quotas yeah. and things like that, they're kind of hard to observe. Mm. And, you know, uh, scholars like, like Nina Pavnik and Penny Goldberg, mm. Um, who are very solid trade people, yes. kind of um, lament the fact that we really don't have really substantial, complete cross-country measures. And why do we these... need that? Why do we need cross-country measures? Because these cross-country measures really tell us about the nature and the policy levels. Why can't I just look at one specific country and understand what's happening in one specific country? Why do I need to try to identify a variable that makes sense in more than one place? Because I think if we do have a complete picture of industrial policy across time and space, then we can really see how it varies by political institutions, which are things that really vary at the national level. I think, again, to, to your earlier point about cross-country studies, I do think cross-country studies have value in thinking about, you know, how... But won't that just lead to a boring answer, like countries with better governance, tip, or, you know, countries with a cohesive, coherent bureaucracy will end up with better industrial, or more effectively... It may well, it may well. But I think it also thinks about, like, we can also think about the f different forms that industrial policy takes in different countries. Or I think often industrial policy... Um, takes on different, yeah, again, different forms at different mm -hmm. places mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because countries, again, are able to... They have different of, priorities. Yeah, exactly. Or they're, they're able to kind of implement industrial policies that are more um, technocratic, also harder to measure. Because our, our picture, our kind of understanding of industrial policy, the way it varies, is really, really incomplete. And all we have is kind of like a bunch of aphorisms and a bunch of kind of... Uh, but why is it important to know that it varies? Like, for example... Yeah, yeah. Health policies vary across the world. Why is it important to know that they vary? Oh, I think it, no, it's important to know they vary, to know like the political drivers and the institutional drivers of these policies, where they work and where they don't, mm -hmm. and to kind of create a systematic knowledge of these things. With industrial policy, we have a very kind of piecemeal understanding of where they're implemented. We have very few empirical studies of where they're implemented. And I tend to think because political institutions vary a lot through time and space, but vary at the national level, that getting a better understanding of the way they interact in a more complete way with industrial policy could have a lot of potentially value added. Because I don't tend to think, a lot of people think, oh, industrial policy doesn't work in democracies and works in autocracies. I, I hear that line a lot. I'm not sure that's true. I'm not sure that's true. And, you know, whether I can speak speak completely to that I, I i can't there is no kind of systematic right so data we need the that. systematic data in order yeah, to, to yeah. explain where it and knowing you know seeing how does the evolution do changes in state capacity administrative capacity do more the implementation of new technocratic institutions change the efficacy of industrial policy i think that could be really useful you know but you're right it might not tell us much it might not tell us much but i think it would give us a much more complete answer than we have now which we kind of 
depend on a lot of tropes, a lot of like, oh, well, we know it happened and it failed in Latin America and it worked in, in, uh, in uh, East Asia. It failed in Latin America because it was, we did import substitution industrialization. It, it succeeded in Asia because they did export promotion industrialization. I think there's potentially a lot of variation within both those contexts. They can be really informative. Oh, really? Yeah. There was, you think there was variation within Latin America? Oh, absolutely. Not just going down the ISI model? Absolutely, yeah. I think, I think you know, Brazil did, did absolutely did export. So now I understand your argument. So your argument is, really, as I understand it, mm. that a lot of people just make these big, grand claims about industrial policy, and you're saying they're not based on sufficiently nuanced, granular evidence yes. about what's going on. Yes. And that's why we need the more systematic look, to be able to unpick and understand when and why it works. In absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. And we just don't have that systematic um, study at the moment. Yeah, and it's given us a lot of caricatures, which right. I think are okay. really incomplete. Right, that's what you're concerned about, the and caricatures, the yeah. unsubstantiated caricatures. Okay, I'm with you. And and I think, I think too, by having a more, incom more complete understanding of the variation in industrial policy, we can get a sense of what works and what doesn't. So your real point is also that Many claims are made on the basis of very limited knowledge. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Especially when it comes to empirics. In what ways, then, have economists tried to get a more granular, precise view of effects in specific areas or industries? Yeah, so what we've been doing lately, or what there's a number of studies lately that are really focusing on specific cases. Of course, this is a lot different than what I was just advocating which is kind of grander knowledge collection, yes. grander yes. data collection. But that's to say, I think a lot of the ways we've been trying to understand industrial policy and a lot of the ways we've been trying to kind of apply causal methodology it is correct in that we've been turning to very specific cases, very constrained cases, and seeing, well, what can we learn from these cases? And I think, you know, some people are a bit bearish on what we can learn from these experiences or what we can even learn empirically. I know Danny Roderick is kind of skeptical of what we can learn empirically. But I think, you know... Why is he skeptical? He's skeptical. I think his argument... There's... He has a couple new... He has... <laughs> there's a number of reasons why he's skeptical. I think one of the reasons why is a really... He has a very good critique of applying contemporary empirical tools to industrial policy. And I think... Not the sort of thing you do. Exactly, but I think um, I think he's right in what in in one particular case or one particular. I think he's right in one one specific way in that, and I think it's important. He says that okay, industrial policy, a lot of our causal tools of analyzing policies in in different places or or, or doing impact evaluation, doing RCTs and things like this, or utilizing natural experiments, we rely on sometimes some policy randomness and accidents. That is, we rely on policies or, you know, discontinuities in policies mm. or random variations in policies. Or deaths. Or deaths, yeah, yeah, yeah. But we rely on kind of randomness in policies that are kind of like, when we think of industrial policy, industrial policy, we kind of want intentionality. We want to kind of, we don't add, we don't implement industrial policy randomly. We allocate industrial policy endogenously to industries where we think it ought to work. That is, it's not like some medical intervention or some kind of uh, educational intervention where, um, you know, a random group of people get this and a random people, other group of people don't get this. 
these things are like unconditionally or conditionally, or I'll just keep it that way. In fact, industrial policy is not the type of policy. It's a policy that we want to implement endogenously. Thus, kind of our intuition that's built on randomized policy, randomly um, allocating policy for impact evaluation, that's, he sees that as kind of almost antithetical to the aims and goals of industrial policy. So what is, is basically saying our contemporary obsession with these economic methods and natural experiments and control for indigeneity are fundamentally the wrong tools for industrial policy because it's just never set up to be like that. Yes, yes, that is, that's kind of the gist or maybe that's, that is... You're that, taking a, a nail in a square hole or whatever the... Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. I curve. I'm butchering uh, the metaphor of... What, uh, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Or, yeah, or, exactly, or, yeah, right. yeah, 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 yeah. And, and that's, that's the case. And so there is, um, of course, like randomize, you know, random, randomizing policy um, in different circumstances. Mm, I should say this. Of course, like, that I think that is true that we of course we don't want industrial we don't want it it would be fruitless it would be it would be kind of wrong-headed to think of a circumstance where you where industrial policy just randomly protected different industries and studying okay let's look at the industries that are randomly protected mm. versus those that weren't mm. well yeah of course that's I think that's a very that's a very um that's that's a that's a trenchant observation and that 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 makes sense mm. but of course like within causal within um causal inference or kind of our contemporary econometric tool set there we do have tools for looking at endogenous policy a lot of educational tool a lot of educational interventions or a lot of um uh, interventions in general are kind of endogenously given we 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 only want to focus on that intervention given to a very particular subset of people and we have ways of looking at that, you know, there is variation in ways of correcting. So there's a lot of work on place-based policies within the EU, for instance, to support lagging regions. How do economists assess the effectiveness of such support? Oh, that's, that's a great question. Um, so my view is that place-based policy and the literature around it is a little more developed by than the empirical literature around industrial policy writ large. And I think of the Venn diagram of Place-based policy, industrial policy, it's, there's a lot of overlap in that Venn diagram. Of course, place-based policy is policy is meant to kind of um, stimulate uh, economic growth or development of a certain region. And just like industrial policy, it's policy that is kind of targeted towards certain sectors that are lagging or it's endogenously targeted. It's targeted towards areas with a certain kind of characteristic. Of course, you don't want to apply place-based policy to just any region. It's, it's usually policy is directed to certain regions. And what people have done, tended to do is do a number of things. Um, tended to kind of think about counterfactual regions, regions that look a lot like um, regions that are being targeted by place-based policy. And um, people like uh, my, my new colleague, who's uh, Sasha Becker and company, studied EU place-based policy and find interesting discontinuities in the policy institutions as an EU place-based policy. And there's certain cutoffs between those who get it and those who don't. And those the ideas that people on the margin, there's, there's rather regions on the margin, according to some criteria, barely make being treated by that policy and those that barely don't make it. And they're pretty much alike on average. And so you're comparing industries or you're comparing rather regions 
lagging regions that are quite similar, but on average, but for some reason that's rather exogenous and arbitrary, there's a set of regions that don't get treated by this policy. Oh, cool. And of course, they're, they're, they're actual... Research design is much more sophisticated than that, actually. But that's just kind of the gist of it. You can think of that as like being kind of a heuristic way nice. of thinking about the way design policy. Right, now to jump back in time. One of my favourite papers that I read recently was about after World War uh, II, uh, uh, uh. Stalin insisted on reparations from Finland and insisted on them in a very particular form. Yes. And this innate, and this incentivized Finland, Finland to rapidly industrialize. Yes. So yes. Mitt Runen has this wonderful paper on this. Can you tell me more about it? Yes. So Matti, who is another IES graduate, um, um, studied along with you, you mean? Yes. Yes. Along with myself, um, uh, studies studied like a very kind of interesting episode in Finnish industrialization in Finland for a long time. Um, had specialized in kind of agricultural and forestry yeah. goods, and and um, of course uh, they uh, they misbehaved uh, <laughs> during World War Two, and um, you know uh, upon uh, upon the end of World War Two, um, signed a treaty with 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 uh, the Soviet Union, and uh, had to pay war reparations to Stalin, and um, in doing so, Stalin didn't demand. Um, gold or or kind of uh direct like transfers he or stalin didn't demand gold he demanded commodities from them and so and specific commodities that uh the soviet union had problems procuring on the world market if i understand the context correctly or the history correctly and so he demanded essentially that the um the Finland almost defy their competitive advantage and start producing heavy industrial equipment, ships in particular. Um, and the threat of, of course, uh, misbehaving, the threat of not abiding by Stalin's commands were, were very real. And so this is, it's an existential threat, same as your South Korea paper. Absolutely. It was like they, they were very much concerned that, that Stalin would, would whoop, just invade. Yeah. As you know, Russia has a history of mm -hmm. doing with Finland. And so, um, and so they were completely worried and it was completely binding that, you know, were they not to cooperate with this treaty, the consequences could be really dire. Mm. And, and so they start, and, and as well, Russia, the Soviet Union then, um, also directly oversaw the policy and subjected this policy to quality standards. That is, as I understand it, Finland had to export these goods to, to the Soviet Union. They had to actually abide by certain quality restrictions, and these things were kind of overseen and checked by, uh, by kind of um, uh, Soviet officials or officials within Finland. And so they essentially had to unroll and roll out this giant industrial policy, uh, which lasted uh, a couple. Is this temporary industrial policy lasted this a very discreet point of time? It was temporary, and they had to roll out this industrial policy rather quickly. And Matrunin finds his paper is really interesting because he not only finds effects, um, long run effects on the productivity of these industries, even after the policy was withdrawn. But he looks at the kind of effects on structural change in general, and in particular, intergenerational human capital um, that resulted from this, this this intervention of Stalin into the Finnish economy. He finds that, that um, of course, it benefited those skilled laborers who had moved into um, 
shipbuilding and the industries that that uh, that Finland was incentivized to participate in. Um, you find strong effects on structural change as labor did flow from kind of low valued added, added industry to these new like kind of heavy industry uh, uh, manufacturing centers. And he finds again too that, that um, it had strong human capital effects not only on the people, not only on the workers who moved into these industries, but using very granular census data that's linked generationally linked, he finds that there were very strong um, effects on the human capital accumulation of the children of male workers who had moved into these industries. That is, they invested more and they tended to enter college more, tended to invest more and earn more later in life. Thank you, Stalin. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, so, to sum up, you've given me some sort of general rules of things to look for and you've highlighted some really awesome empirical research and Side note, I like that you've mentioned not only male economists, but also female economists doing wonderful work. Thanks for pointing that out, too. I think, um... Oh, well, that you don't hate women, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> uh, no, but, but I, I kept going, going back to that point, can yeah. I say one thing? It's like, yeah. industrial policies, it, it, some people maybe rightly contend that it's a kind of a macho literature, mm. which might be true because, you know, we think of industry as this kind of masculine thing, this mm, mas aesthetically mm, masculine mm, thing. But um, but industrial policy is a literature that I think has been f almost the major papers and contributions to industrial policy, literature-wise, have been by women. Yeah, Alice Amston, you <laughs> What was that? Alice Amston. Alice Amston, Anne Harrison, mm -hmm. uh, Anne Kruger. Mm. I think... Like, yeah, on all, both sides, yeah. Uh, both sides of the debate. Both sides of the debate it's been completely um women have made like the main contributions to this literature so i don't think that's the fairest critique of those working on industrial policy that people work on it because it's kind of um a masculine object of inquiry that i think it's one that's fundamentally been shaped by by women which i think is really interesting kind of strange uh if you think about many um all many fields domains. have been fundamentally shaped by women yeah. <laughs> Anyway, right, okay, so let's get back to the, the, yeah, so I, let's suppose, Nathan, I'm giving you a funding for three PhD students. What would you be really keen to support? What do you want to see happening? So I, I, I push people, even though I myself don't have a good entry point on how to study it, mm. I want to study, one, I push people to study, there's so many industrial, and this is going to be a lame answer, but All there's- All your answers have been, so that's fine. <laughs> So uh, one thing I would um, one thing I would press people to study in general. There's so many industrial policies that aren't studied. There's so many interesting cases, and I think I think this is again this is lame. That I think the value added of doing any empirical work in industrial policy is huge, just because we're starting from a very very small baseline. So you'll take anything. Really, I think I think there's so many canonical policies that have not been dug into and not been unpacked. They think. Are there um, any um, that stand out that you'd really like to read instance, a paper on? The, the Latin American policies. Export promotion in the Latin American context. I'd love to know. Uh, I wonder if you know about Pinochet's, uh, Chile's um, salmon, you know, salmon industrial policy. Their, foreign, uh, their forestry industrial policies, I think, are very interesting. Um, but in general, I think we know very... Uh, go, going back to kind of what I said about the caricatures of ISI, mm -hmm. I think we know very little about kind of specifically the impacts of these policies. 
especially the delete chase effects of these policies, the long run bad effects of these policies. I'd love to know those. Mm. I'd love to know that more. Okay, so that's the econ history. What about contemporary industrial policy? What would you be really keen to understand now? I'd love to know more about on the R&D end and the service end. Like going back to Isabella Manalici, mm. I think, you know, she studies service sector, tech sector in contemporary Romania. Mm. And why I think that's important, and why I think it's important to study contemporary industrial policy, I think, again, we talked about multilateral trade agreements and the kind of contemporary international legal structure, which constrains and I think shapes industrial policies or the forms they take in much different ways than in the past. And I think she studies a policy that I think is, is, very, is very interesting and kind of a, a, a legally binding under international law. Um, mm-hmm. um, uh, industrial policy in contemporary Romania, in the services sector, in the tech industry. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, we need to know more about these types of policies that are being pursued in many, many, many countries. I think there's a lot of scope to study these types of policies. Again, policies that are occurring under the contemporary international legal norms. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I think industrial policy takes a bit of a different form in this context, but it happens nonetheless. And sometimes, because industrial policy doesn't take the form that it used to take, I think some people assume that it doesn't happen. Right. But it happens every day under international policy. We think of the contemporary EU. Regional place-based policy yeah. is, in fact, legal. Yes. It does happen. And so, and that's a form of industrial policy. Can I put a, yeah. a, a plug in for one of your PhD slots? I think, so there's a really great book by Nathan Jensen and Eddie Molesky, Incentives ah. to Panda. And they look at corporate subsidies and corporate handouts in the US. And one of their implications, one of their empirical findings is that corporate handouts don't necessarily enable investment that wouldn't otherwise happen. Uh And I guess that's the big challenge for industrial policy is how to get around that. And... And that's going to become incredibly important with things like the Green New Deal and green industrial policy. You know, how do you incentivize solar panels, for example, when you're not in a way that doesn't just give out money to people who would be doing it anyway in California, whatever. Yeah. Or does does this crowd out private investment and things like that? No, no, I think so. I think that's why thinking about, again, going back... How can economics give us a handle on how to design industrial policy better? So so I'm saying that's the challenge from Nathan and Eddie. And I am on first name terms with him, so that's fine. <laughs> that's the I, challenge. I noticed on Twitter, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. the challenge. That's the challenge. So how, can economics help us work out how to get round that very real challenge? I mean, that's not just, you know, that's in, in the USA, we've got this problem. Yeah. How do we get around? Can economic studies help us work out how to get around that? Yeah, I think in a developing context, we, we definitely can by thinking about, I mean, these are, these are places where markets are much more incomplete. You know, there's much more, there's many more kind of factor market frictions in the U.S. So I think understanding the nature of um, market failures and frictions, I think could really help us design better industrial policies and also inform, going back to, to, to mm-hmm. using, uni, using Ernest's um, work as kind of a parable for this, understanding the interaction between, um, between industrial policy and market failures, I think is key for these things not to occur, or for, for not, not, is key to designing probably better policy. I think people like, like, uh, the cohort of, or the people like, again, talking about first name basis, people like Danny Roderick, 
um, people who emphasize and stress it. I think that is the right way to go. Thinking coherently about where market failures do occur and how industrial policy interacts with market failures, I think is key. I think that is key. Okay, so let me sum up where we are now. One, there is a huge wealth of research on industrial policy and it's very awesome and innovative. Much of it has done, been done by women and that's fabulous. But we still know very little and yet people continue to caricature it and make these grand sweeping assertions and clearly that's not adequate and we need much more granular nuanced research and going forward in filling that gap people should be guided by economic history so they have a firm understanding of the specific policies the specific intentions the important backwards and forwards linkages the broad range of possible outcomes whether it's human capital of people's yeah. children or productivity or wider growth in the economy yeah 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 that's no. pretty much it in 30 no. seconds that's that's a great that's a great synopsis of it nathan lane thank you very much alice evans <laughs> thank you so much